0: You are listening to the Cycling Podcast of the 2023 Tour de France. Today, we're in Bordeaux.
1: Hello and welcome to Bordeaux, a very hot, steamy afternoon in Bordeaux. Temperatures really jumped up a bit today in the Tour de France. We're going to recap stage seven here. My name is Lionel Burney, of course, and I'm only with Mitch Docker this evening. I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, Mitch. Delighted to be with you, but of course we are without our very dear friend Francois Tomazot, who is enjoying his first day of retirement today. But welcome, Mitch. Thanks, Lionel. It's great to be here.
2: I know you said we're in Bordeaux, but actually where exactly are we right now?
1: I know we're right in downtown Bordeaux, but where are we? Well, we're in a very attractive, pedestrianised boulevard, aren't we, outside one of a number of bars here sitting under a nice parasol. The River Garonne is just down there and that's where the stage finished. We're probably about 300 meters to go here, aren't we? We're parallel with that point. And did you see the huge cruise ship that mm. are parked up pretty much next to the finish line to give all the, uh, the holiday cruisers a great view of the stage finish this afternoon?
2: Oh, it's bustling here. I, I could not believe how many people were on that final straight today. It was it was it was amazing actually I know it's a Tour de France and there's a lot of people here but that is the most crowds I've seen so far at one particular spot obviously I wasn't in the Basque Country at those those mountains but it was really happening here today. It's, like, it's still happening here. It's bustling down here.
1: It is. Well, Bordeaux is the sixth biggest city in France by population and sometimes when the Tour comes into a big city it can feel a little bit lost. You can be a few blocks away and almost feel like nothing is going on. Definitely not, not that really. sense here today. Huge crowds and, well, Bordeaux and the Tour de France go hand in glove because this was the 81st visit by the Tour here. The only other city to have had more visits from the Tour, Paris, of course. But we should on with the business of the day. It's time for the tale of the attack. So three sprint finishes in this tour so far, three stage wins for Jasper Philipsen, the Belgian rider with Alpecin de Koenig and he strengthened his grip on the green jersey, the dark green jersey as leader of the points competition and perhaps not surprisingly it wasn't the most thrilling of stages, was it? 169.9 kilometers from mont de massin up here to Bordeaux, wine country of course, and, well, the last two days in the Pyrenees were so aggressive, so hard, you could forgive the peloton for having an easier day. And we knew as soon as we got the news that Arkea Samsix Simon Guglielmi was the only rider in the breakaway. He got clear after 30 kilometres. Well, that told us it was going to be a fairly calm day for the peloton. He hovered out there on his own until 78 kilometres to go, when Nans Peters of AG2R and Pierre Latour of Total Energies rode across to him. Guglielmi was dropped around 38 kilometres to go and the other two persisted until Latour went clear on his own with seven to go, but he was caught well in time for what looked on the roadbook like a really tricky run-in and from the helicopter shot sat... Uh, sweep round the big corner almost a corkscrew effect and the corners and all the roundabouts leading leading up to it looked like it might be really dangerous but actually they took it very calmly and we'll talk a little bit about that in this first part quite a clean approach to the finish and then well the sprint and so Jasper Philipson won his third stage of this year's tour Five in six when you look back at the stages that have finished in more or less bunch sprints. The one exception is the finishing to Cahors last year where Christophe Laporte took the flyer and sort of denied the bunch sprinters. But for a few moments it really looked like Mark Cavendish who won here the last time the Tour visited Bordeaux 13 years ago. It looked like he was going to do it and, and take that record outright. Let's hear what Mark Cavendish had to say about the finish because Philipson came past him second place for Cavendish this evening.
3: Hi well, Mark, after fifth place and your sixth place we felt you were heartened and encouraged. Is there a bit more frustration today? Yeah, a little bit. Um,
4: boys are good, they're incredible. Um, jump when I wanted to. Unfortunately, I had a problem with my gears when I was sprinting. I went from the 11th to the 12th, I had to sit down and we're back to the 11 stand up again and then back to the 12 and go so pretty devastated there actually you know in spite of that
3: when you were ahead and you saw the line 40, 30 metres ahead of you did you
4: start to believe? no like I said um, by that or by to 30, 40 to go I was already had to sit down and stand up again and my gears were already jumping 11, 12, 11, 12 like you've got to kind of pray it's not a belief then it's, it's, it's a hope you know but it's what it is we try again
3: and Mark, we were a bit worried with two, three kilometers to go. You weren't in shot at the front of the peloton. Um, what kind of abracadabra did you guys do to get you back in position um, in the finishing straight? Just
4: Case. He's amazing. He's like uh, he's like an assassin, you know. He just does what he needs to do. He's just there, uh, move me up. He knows he's got to work earlier than the actual lead out to get me in a good position. You know? Then he'll do that. But... Uh, he did perfect, perfect for me to get me on the right wheel into the last K. It's just a case of time and when I jumped, you know. And with
3: gears that are working, a chain that goes onto the 11 sprocket, do you still think that you've got the speed to, to beat these guys, and particularly Phillipson? I think so, yeah.
4: yeah. I'd imagine uh, there might be a couple of teams protesting against Phillipson anyway today, you know, so they didn't repeat me, so there's nothing wrong with that. For what move was that, Mark? It came from the left to the right. He didn't impede me at all though, so it's not, not for me to discuss.
1: So ITV's Daniel Freeber with the questions there. Praise from Case Ball, uh for his work in the run-in. But crucially, Cavendish explaining that he was unable to select the gear that he wanted. And he had to sit down in the sprint and that really tipped the balance in Phillipson's favour. Although you do have to say that that Philipson looked really, really fast. Biniam Gamay of Ante Marche, he was third, his best result so far in the tour. Luca Mozzato of Arkea fourth. Dylan Groenewegen fifth. Overall, Jonas Vingegaard safely home, Jumbo visma had Laporte lead Vingegaard through that tricky section of the finale, so there's no change overall, and there's no change to who's wearing the other leaders' jerseys either. But Mitch, what did you make of the finish? Philipsen clearly the fastest in this race, but Alperson de Körning also seemed to get the lead out spot on again.
2: They really did actually and it was about 2k to go. They, they were up there as well with Yumbo Visma, who Yumbo Visma were obviously trying to get Jonas Finger inside that I think it was 3.6k today actually. They extended the safe zone if you want to call it that. They were actually up there as well working with them and they were sitting just behind them as they knew once they got inside the 3K to go, the Yumbo Visma would fade away and it was someone else had to take charge. But it was it's quite a weird pause there. You know, as the road narrowed as they came across that bridge. There are about four teams across the front. It was almost like a bit of a stalemate. You know, who's going to go? It was too early to go full gas, but it was, you know, it was... It was. Everyone was sort of waiting for the first team to go. And then
1: is, is this because there's no lead-out train? Every team's got one, two, at a push, three riders still in the mix at that point. So there's no one that wants to make the mistake of going too early and, and blowing their chance.
2: Well, I think they're just exactly right. They didn't have enough men to take control. They had to wait to an area, a, a point... Sort of 1.5k, 5k to go. To go, okay. We've got enough men now to make it to deliver our sprinter. Um, and ultimately, at the last minute, Alberson de Koenig had another man come up on their left, almost like a surprise extra ally. He arrived at the front. I can't remember his name. Who it is? There, he arrived, and then ultimately they said, "It's time to go. It's game time." And they and off they went. Um, and they took control from there. It was. It was. Pretty clean sprint, as you say, as they came into Bordeaux, into that promenade there. It was very clean and very exciting to watch Mark Cavendish sort of, as the camera showed it, I was watching on the TV, he was out of shot. He was that far back. It probably would have been, you know, 30 wheels back, and he took that flyer, and my heart was in my mouth at that point. I thought, he's got it. He really has got it.
1: Yeah, I mean, we were counting how many riders were in front of him at the point that Case Bowl starts to move him up, and it's definitely 25, maybe 30 riders. But then even with, you know, 350 metres to go, he's still not in the overhead shot, is he? He's, he's coming from so far back. And he looked like he had the Cavendish jump of old, didn't he? Because he got out of the saddle, he accelerated past everybody, he opened the door, there was daylight there for a fleeting moment. As you say, I thought, that was it. 35 tour stage wins. History is going to be made in Bordeaux this afternoon. How appropriate would that be? This is the kind of the capital city for sprinters in the Tour de France. But no, Philipson, you just have to say, yes, the, the issue with Cavendish's gears certainly hampered him, but I, I don't know whether that would have been the difference anyway. Phillipson just looks really, really fast. And as you say, Alpers and de Koenig had no hiccups on that run-in.
2: They really didn't, you know, and they, they really... Nailed it. And when even Phillipson was surprised by a Cavendish sort of attack, if you want to say that, or hit out, he was able to adjust his, his attack. He moved across and moved Binghamay cleanly off his wheel, took a moment pause and then hit off him again. That is a skilled sprinter. Uh, once again, one thing I really want to point out is that he is definitely the fastest. That's not one point. But the reason why he's the fastest is he is the strongest. He is the strongest sprinter here. And what I mean by that is he's arriving at these sprints the freshest. He's able to do different moves within the sprint. He's not completely gasped and he's only got one move. is to sprint for the line. He's able to adjust. He jumps off his sprint train, sits for a moment on another sprint train, and comes off. It's quite amazing to understand how skillful that is for a sprinter. That's, I think, what is making for me him so good and we saw him come from a long way back on the racetrack we saw him come off the front at this point here he's done different things he's not just winning in one way
1: yeah that's a good point I mean what about the comment Mark Cavendish made potentially about and you know moving off his line or closing the door a little bit did you think there was any anything in that or was it clean enough for
2: me, it looked clean enough. You know, I would probably need to really watch it again to, to decide that, and I'm not a jury in that, but on the moment that I watched it, I felt like he cleanly, you know, rested on Mark's wheel and he moved Gamay off that wheel. Um, it didn't look too aggressive to me, Um
1: well, as Cavendish said, it didn't affect him, did it? But maybe Gamay would have a different uh, opinion. But, I mean, holding the wheel in the sprint is part of the game, isn't it? You, you can't get moved off the wheel unless you move off the wheel, really, as well. I mean, there is, it's six of one, half a dozen of the other, I guess, isn't it?
2: The question is, it's almost at that point there, I think, if, you know, it's very easy to say from my position, Bingham, Bingham Gamay could have gone then. would have been a beautiful time to hit off Mark Cavendish at that moment. I think what... One thing is—is is it a question everyone's sort of probably throwing out there? Oh, Mark Cavendish—he probably went too early. I don't think he did. I think he went at a beautiful moment. And I think if there's anyone to know at the right time to take a sprint, it's Mark Cavendish. He would have been sitting back there assessing that whole situation more than anyone would have ever known. He would have known where the sprinters were at the front. He would have known what you know, Al- Alberson were doing assessed his position, looked at what he needed to, and decided in his own time, this is when I need to go to win the stage.
1: Yeah, I mean, people have looked back at the 2010 sprint that Cavendish won here, comparing where he went in relation to the line. And, I mean, I think so much water under the bridge since that point, 13 years. Mark Cavendish is a different athlete now to the one he was then. And sprinting has changed since those days. Uh, as, as we've said, um, there isn't the lead-out train. There isn't any one team that really takes it and, and just keeps everybody mm-hmm. out of the picture. As much as Alpersin Koenig were in control of what they were doing, it wasn't like they w- were eliminating everyone else from contention. So, well, there we go. We wait to see whether Cavendish can get that... Well, it's becoming almost mythical, isn't it, this 35th stage win?
2: Well, you could you could really see it. I was waiting in his bus straight after the finish, and he came straight in. You know, he's still almost holding the same speed as the bunch when he arrived. Pulled these brakes on, and I, I don't know if it was sure. I could see it was almost just about breaking down in tears. I could feel the emotion right there. I could feel he was, you know, deeply disappointed because he saw it. He felt it. I'm assuming 30 meters to go. He could see daylight.
1: Yeah, for the first time in this tour. And, well, there might not be that many more opportunities. He's got his family here as well. And, uh, you know, that's always indicative, isn't it? Mm. Inviting the family over for a particular stage. I don't know precisely how long they've been on the tour. I don't know whether they've arrived today just in time. But, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a little bit of a wait to see whether he can do that. What about some of the other sprinters? I mean, we don't want to go too much into Dylan Groenewegen because he's not really doesn't really appear to be getting going just yet but the one interesting one is Sudar Quickstep Fabio Jakobsen they rode as if Jakobsen was going to be in contention of course he's had uh, um, the effects of that crash from the motor racing circuit in Nogolo and struggling a bit yesterday losing a lot of time making it inside the time limit but Mitch you spoke to Ilio Kaiser, who's part of the the backroom team there at Sudar Quickstep and the, the obvious question is are they feeling the pressure?
2: Tell me a little bit about the sprint today and what happened out there with the boys.
5: It was pretty dangerous final, especially the last 3.5k. Uh, last um, so most important was to be well organized in the front. They were not really organized, but Michael was there together with Fabio. But then I don't know what happened, Fabio with 2k to go, he just let 15 guys pass. And then uh, basically there was already over because the last final straight, 1.8 K to go was, was not wide enough to, to pass and uh, I think he was positioned around 15 and he finished 15. So How are
2: you guys feeling now? Quick step, the wolf pack.'re used to at least winning it by this point in the Tour de France. Is the pressure building
5: or everyone's handling the pressure okay? Uh, sure there's pressure. this is the tour and uh, w- we are used to, to win and to win a lot and to win uh, early. And we haven't won yet, and for sure there's pressure, I think. Every team that hasn't won yet, they have, uh, they have pressure, and the pressure is rising, but for sure in our team.
1: Well, the pressure mounting on Sudar Quickstep, and uh, I mean, just a little aside, don't want to go too deeply into this now, but Mitch, mm. you were saying in the press room, you know, with Julian Alaphilippe, Visible, but somewhat out of sorts. Riding like you suggested, a rider a bit short on confidence when you consider his past results. You know, making kind of elementary mistakes on the stage yesterday. Uh, his morale might be a little bit rocky in Sudal Quickstep at the moment.
2: Well, I'm, I'm feeling, not necessarily the morale, I'm, I'm, I'm just definitely feeling it. It looked like for, for me on the outside that there was these were moves of pressure, this pressure mounting, someone needs to do something, someone needs to release that pressure valve. Just the way that he was riding in that breakaway yesterday, going on these early moves at the bottom of the Tour of Malay and really applying that pressure, it just didn't seem like, for me, it seemed like a, a move out of pressure. It just didn't seem like the old Alaphilippe, you know, really following and making great moves. He was the guy sort of doing these dummy moves almost. Yeah,
1: forcing it yeah. at the wrong moment yeah. maybe, or just out of that little bit of desperation. But back to the sprint, what else did you notice this afternoon?
2: Well, I always have a keen eye on um, my old team, you know, Jaco Alula, aka Edge as I still like to call them, and just seeing what they're doing there. Of course, my my man there, D- Luke Durbridge, and just sort of keep a keen eye on them, and I thought they had a pretty good job, and I went across and had a chat with Matt Heyman, just to see what was going on there, because One of the things I alluded to when I was speaking to him was, is it the issue that you guys are sort of trying to do two things here? You know, you've got your GC with Simon Yates, who is fourth on GC. We can't forget that. Yet you've got a quality sprinter like Groeneweg here, a guy who can win stages at Tour de France. How do you balance that? Are you maybe trying to juggle too much? Is that the issue in the lead out? You know, you're missing one or two more. He, he completely debunked that and said, we actually don't have anyone else in our roster to fill those spots for the lead out. We've got the best we've got here. So it was actually quite a good answer. But it also comes back to the mentality too. When you've got a full roster, just so they have a couple more guys for it, everyone's on game for the train. And that is something that Jasper Philipson said. He said, we're here to win sprints. We've got a full team committed to sprints.
0: The cycling podcast at the 2023 Tour de France is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport fuelled by science.
1: As Science in Sport chief executive Stephen Moon explains, he's not managed yet to make it over to Sierra Leone to see the Tour de Lensail with his own eyes, but he keeps in touch with the race throughout by talking to people on the ground.
6: Our Science in Sport annual results and investor roadshow is at the same time as the... um the race so i've not been there um we we have we we have someone go every year and, and we're in very very close touch throughout the race actually i speak to kareem more than once during the race so <laughs> colorful colorful i mean um the first year was a bit of a disaster and ended up in a huge argument at the end because there was no timing equipment so there were all sorts of lurid allegations of cheating so Last year and the year just gone, we um, we funded the hire of a timing system. So, a timing system and crew to operate it was brought from. Uh, I can't even remember where a cycling club somewhere else, possibly Rwanda. So now, so now we fund we fund at uh, the events and all the prize money and some of the logistics costs, and and, and, and now we fund the um, timing equipment.
1: Science in Sport fuels riders all over the world, including at the Tour de Lunsar in Sierra Leone and has supported the cycling podcast since 2016. Go to scienceinsport.com to fuel your ride. Well, Mitch, that's the sprinting done with for a few days at least. Le Puy-de-Dôme is looming on the horizon. We'll be able to see it pretty soon. It towers above Clément-Ferrand and it's the subject of today's Kilometre Zero with the Puy-de-Dôme stage on Sunday. And if you want to sign up as a friend of the podcast, you can listen to the whole Kilometre Zero series. Go to thecyclingpodcast.com and it's really easy to sign up and then get the subscription feed link directly onto your phone or device or however you want to listen and for the first time you can sign up monthly as well so uh, an annual subscription obviously helps out the cycling podcast that bit more but if you're not you know you're wavering about uh, the friends of the podcast scheme or the kilometer zero episodes sign up for a month it's a couple of cups of afternoon cappuccino and uh, well you can see whether you like uh, what you hear and well We'll like what we hear next because we're going to hear from a very good friend of the podcast.
0: Let's check in with Il Barone, Brian Nygaard.
1: This morning, I dialed up our very good friend, Brian Nygaard, who graced our Giro d'Italia coverage, of course. I wanted to get... uh, An impression of how the last couple of days have gone down in Denmark. Jonas Vingegård, of course, their big star, the defending champion. They must have been as high as kites two days ago and then slightly deflated. I'm not sure you can deflate a kite, but, uh, well, that's probably how they were feeling yesterday afternoon. Hello, Brian. How are you doing? How's the tour been for you so far?
7: Hi, Lionel. Uh, I'm doing very well, and yeah, the tour for me as well has been—it's been a blast. It's been sort of edge of the seat kind of action, just as I was hoping.
1: And what's your role during the Tour de France? Because you're working for Danish TV, right?
7: Yes, I'm. I'm working for the the national broadcaster DR, which is probably quite similar to the BBC in uh, in your neck of, neck of the woods. But I'm also working for the oldest newspaper in the world weekend avis it's called and it was first published in 1751 and i've been working for them for the last only the last 7 years it feels a bit longer but i write for them uh, every day during the tour uh, digitally and they it's a it's a weekly paper probably compared to the observer and, uh, and then I have a, a piece in the in the printed paper every week as well. So uh, yeah, they're keeping me busy.
1: And so, what's the mood in Denmark after the last two days in the Pyrenees? I guess pretty confident two days ago, and perhaps a little less confident after the stage finishing Cotere.
7: Yeah, exactly. It's sort of uh, yellow with a touch of blue, isn't it? Uh, everyone, I mean, I. I'm not to say if that's the exact number, but I, I have a feeling that the majority of of the Danish Tour de France viewers are are cheering and and hoping for Wingengaard to to basically defend his title from last year. But just as it, as it looked like he had it in the bag of sorts, then yeah, everything just I, I wouldn't say that it changed completely, but it, it's I think if for, for those of us who above and beyond love a good bike race. It's probably the best thing that could happen. Uh, I'm not sure that all my fellow Danes agree, but yeah, uh, I, I think it's a, it's a great thing. He's still quite open who's going to win it. But yeah, there's probably a little bit of a, a, a hangover-ish mood in, in Denmark, I would say. I mean, we remember from the Grand
1: Prix in Copenhagen just how popular Vingegaard was. I mean, the crowds were huge. The reception he got was incredible. And then, of course, I think the crowds were probably three times the size when he had his homecoming after the tour. What kind of character is he and what is his profile like in Denmark? That's
7: actually a really good question. And then it it's something that I've spent quite a bit, on, bit of time on analyzing as well, not just in the Danish context, but in general as, as a rider and, and a personality, because he he doesn't really give away much and he's a very private person. He's quite reserved. He's not as available to the media as as a lot of other superstars, I suppose, in, in any sport in Denmark. But he's he's definitely liked, and and I suppose also I don't know him well at all. But he seems like a very likable person. But he's someone who who certainly demands his his private life. In a, in a way, he he does and he doesn't because his you know his wife is uh, they got married recently, I believe, and and she's in a lot of ways sort of the gatekeeper of of his public life in a way she's. She's always there, isn't she and And I also know from some of my colleagues that they at times had to go through her to to get access to him and to give an example he uh, I think he had yeah after Lombardy last year he didn't race uh for the rest of the year, and there was a big award show in Denmark, which is the biggest award show in in sports, and it's a yearly thing and and there was certainly no doubt that he would win the award for the sports person of the year but they, they had a really hard time convincing him to come because his uh, explanation via her was that he needed time at home and and that's something that we can all understand but you know Lionel both you and I have have children and it's not easy to always fit everything else in your calendar but there's been a bit of a feeling in certain parts of the media that he is probably not the most available of 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 superstars that we have
1: and I mean you say that about you know w- w- you know whenever uh, somebody emerges suddenly uh, there's this clamor to find out a little bit about him and and I kind of feel like the media is stuck on the narrative of you know the former um the, the former worker in the fish market and that's kind of the sum total of knowledge we have about Jonas Fingergard but there must be more to him than that
7: Yeah I mean I think part of that is 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 due to the fact that it's is all gone so quickly you know from when he finished second in the tour to now where he's the defending champion It's very little time has passed and it's probably not all, always been easy for him as well to to fit into that role and and to understand and and really encompass and and get a grasp of his own role and all of those obligations that follow him you know i thought it was yeah, disappointing is a, is a big word, but the fact that he wasn't at the tour presentation uh, when the route was uh, unveiled in October last year, I, I thought that was a little bit subpar for someone who, you know, is, is a is a young star and someone that people really want to know about. But uh, it's it's I, I think it's getting better, and I think access is, has become a little bit more streamlined. But, yeah, it could be, Lionel, that, that he just hasn't had time really to do a lot other than... Maybe mentally take a little bit of a break and then focus. As we as we can definitely see, also when you look at his race program, focus almost solely on on defending his title this year.
1: What about the Netflix effect? Because the Belgian press have been trying to play up this rift between Van Aert and Wingergaard. I mean, the way Van Aert's ridden in the Pyrenees pretty much puts to bed any suggestion that there's uh, uh, you know any difficulty between the two of them showed to us here, I think, that Van Art is as committed to the overall Jumbo-Visma plan as anybody. Um, but uh, Netflix has kind of opened the door to the team and given us a little bit of grist for the mill, hasn't it, I suppose?
7: Yeah, yeah, and, and, and I think in certain scenes in, in the Netflix series, we we caught a glimpse of what what could have been a conflict and what could have been a a, a difficult way for them to adjust the 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 horsepower they have to the various goals they they insist on having. Because I'm quite certain even this year, as much as Wout van Aert was definitely a, a MVP and a game changer for Winkegaard on on the stage, um, the first stage in the Pyrenees, there's there's there is still, I think, a little bit, and it's you know, it's easy to understand because Wout van Aert is just such an incredible bike rider that that he also wants something himself, a personal a, a win or yeah something quite visible uh result wise and not a lot of riders in the world can do can do both and and he he just happens to be someone that 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 can and it's it's jumbo visma's headache to administer it and so far they've done quite well but I'm not sure that that we can just say and and well that's it. There's no conflict and and everything will be fine because I don't think Vordfanard is 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 willing to leave this tour without winning something for himself.
1: And lastly, for now, Brian. I mean, we've seen on these two consecutive days in the Pyrenees that both Vingegaard and Pogacar possess this incredible acceleration that really puts themselves but also their rivals into the red and then it's the case of who can suffer the best isn't it I mean that's how I kind of um, feel about these two days it feels to me like the two riders are so similar in the, the strength that it might come down to who has the strongest weakness if you like how do you see it who do you think's got the upper hand at the moment
7: yeah, I agree. It's sort of a pendulum that that doesn't really, you know, it's it's swinging on a chain, and and we we don't know yet, and and that's very very wonderful for for the bike race, and and I know that Vingegaard's been training very specifically on his on his acceleration. It, it's been a key part of his preparation. I think knowingly that, or for him to to knowingly understand that that's he has to, he had to work on that to really be competitive against Pokajcha. I think when you look at the teams, which you, you can't look, look beyond, uh, you, sorry, you can't look past because that's, a, that's an integral role in how you win a tour. Jombo Visma is, is the strongest team. But right now, at least until now, I think Pogacar has a little bit the upper hand because that half minute of, uh, of daylight uh, Vingegaard has in the yellow jersey is a very dangerous lead. And uh, w- we won't know until Sunday whether he's actually able to Get back into the role that he had in the first date appearance to really put poker Pokercher under pressure and and uh yeah that 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 doubt i think is is a is a wonderful dynamic for the race because i certainly don't know either brilliant
1: that's what we love about the tour de france isn't it uh brian thank you very much have a great day we'll check in again with you very soon
7: thank you very much Lionel. always a pleasure
1: We're going to make sure that there's no absence of French flavour over the rest of the tour. Francois Thomaso will be dialing in, perhaps not every day, but he'll be sending in a little dispatch. So let's hear from our good friend Francois Thomaso.
0: Now for some French flavour, will be Francois Thomaso. Well, this Tour de France has paid homage to lots of uh, great uh, cyclists and the great Tour de France heroes. And today, uh, the start was in Mont-de-Marsan and Mont-de-Marsan for, for cycling for the Tour de France is really tied, linked to Luis Ocaña, Because that's where he started his uh, cycling career when he was uh, well, well, yeah. a young up-and-coming rider. He, his parents emigrated from Spain uh, in the area and he started you know, to ride back in 1963 for the local Mont-de-Marsan club. A, it's quite a famous club for rugby as well, with yellow and black uh, colors, the Stade Montois. Um, and he was so successful in the amateur, uh, amateur ranks that he was already called by all his rivals, the Spaniard from Mont-de-Marsan. When he had to choose to do a professional career, he signed for Spanish team Fagon and he decided to remain Spanish. He could have been French, which would have added quite a few well, a a few grand tours to the the French record. But anyway, he he became the Spaniard of Mont de Marseille, became, of course, one of the greatest rivals of Eddie Merckx. He became the stuff of legend in 1971 in the tour when he uh, attacked uh, Merckx almost every single day, uh, took a lot of time off the Belgian, and then was... Uh, unfortunately for him, uh, involved in a crash on the Col de Monte. Uh, Youbzotemel crashed on top of him and he was forced out of the race. In many ways, he was a very unfortunate and lucky rider, but he still managed to win the Tour de France in 1973 when uh, Merckx didn't uh, uh, enter the race. The end of his career, unfortunately, was marked by crashes, car accidents, uh, health problems and financial difficulties, and he ended up committing suicide in 1994 uh, in his farm. He had bought a farm very close to Nogaro, on six days from Nogaro, which was also, as you know, uh, the finish of a stage in this Tour de France. So yes, this Mont-de-Marsan stage would be obviously a kind of a homage to Luis Ocania.
1: We didn't actually make it to the start in mont de Marsan this morning, not because we were struggling with post-retirement bash hangovers, no, 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 no. well we weren't, we weren't, but we did have a quite leisurely start, we wanted to have breakfast, say farewell to Francois, and uh, get on the road in our own time. We were actually hoping to get to La Bastide d'Armagnac, to the Notre Dame des Cyclistes, there was an intermediate sprint there a few days ago, and well, it's a chapel dedicated to cyclists, it's got loads of old jerseys in there, there's Jack Concatiles, Mayo Jaune from the 50s or early 60s. I thought, Mitch, you'd love it in there Mm. as a real kind of nostalgia. Um, you know, you love the old jerseys and uh, well, so do I Uh, unfortunately though, we got our timings a little bit wrong it was quite a long drive across country we realised we might be in danger of not just missing the finish but missing our good friend David Luxton's flight which was leaving Bordeaux early this evening and he needed to be there in the afternoon so anyway, we detoured and uh, got ourselves to Bordeaux but Mont-de-Massin was the place where a great rider, Louis Ocania, grew up. So, as Francois explained there, Louis Ocania, born in Spain but brought up in Mont-de-Marcin, and this Sunday is the 50th anniversary of one of the greatest Tour de France stages you might not have heard anything about. Now, Having won four tours in a row, Eddie Merck skipped the 1973 event entirely. He, he won the Vuelta and the Giro instead, and apparently that was because his team sponsor, Moultaini, insisted on a clause that meant that Merckx rode both the Vuelta and the Giro. And once he'd done both of those, because they were held in the spring in those days, Merckx decided that doing the treble would be uh, a bit too much. There's been all sorts of stories over the years that the Tour de France organisers paid Merckx to stay away because they were getting bored of him winning every year, but not sure. Sure, that's the case. Anyway, Ocagna was already a kind of cult hero, a brilliant climber. He'd looked set to win the race in 1971 until he had a terrible crash on the descent of the Col de Monte. And in 73, he went into the race as one of the big favourites. He was already in the yellow jersey, but it was stage 8 of the Tour in the Alps, which went to Les Ors, Huge, huge day. 237 and a half kilometres over the Madeleine and Telegraph, the Galibier, the Isoard, and then an uphill finish at Les Ors. It took them seven hours, 55 minutes in riding time. And Ocaña, who was already in the yellow jersey by about three minutes, and his compatriot, José Manuel Fuente, absolutely destroyed the field. And in the end, Ocania beat Fuente by 58 seconds, but the third-place rider, Mariano Mart- Martinez, was 6 minutes 57 back, and sixth-place Zoto Zotomelk was 20 minutes back. Can you imagine that sixth place in a tour stage what, 20 minutes back down? was the groupetto? Oh, who knows? I mean, probably finished the next day. But was there time cuts in those days? Do you know? Good question. I think there probably was. Uh, we need Francois here for that I question, know. don't we? But. Um, Orcania ended up winning the tour by more than 15 minutes and Fuente was third and as I say it's probably one of those classic stages that has been overlooked and certain people have suggested maybe it's because the two protagonists were Spaniards rather than French riders, even though uh, was could have been claimed by the French because he grew up in mont de marsin Anyway, before the tour, Daniel Fribert spoke to the Spanish journalist Carlos Arribas of El País about these two great Spaniards, Ocaña and Fuente, and their incredible duel on the stage de Lesor 50 years ago. <laughs>
4: They were seen as
3: equals, the Spanish fans put them on the same level, they were stubborn, stubborn, stubborn. They both rode on instinct, and above all, I don't know if hate's the right word, certainly a very strong word, but they each had this desire to do away with the other one. It was a tremendous rivalry, the same rivalry the two had with Eddie Merckx. It was a little bit of this mentality of not accepting that anyone could even entertain the idea they were superior. No one would dare to attack Merx except them. So Ocaña or Fuente were two equals who inevitably clashed. One was more of a climber, Fuente, whereas Ocaña was a more complete rider. He was a superb time trialist and a climber. Ocaña always complained that in France he was considered Spanish and in Spain French, and that bothered him greatly. But when he came to Spain, he won a Spanish championship and raced a Vuelta with the Spanish champion's jersey. People admired him as a Spaniard. Another thing is that we in Spain have always liked climbers more, people who, as they say, will put their balls on the table. Fuente was the embodiment of that, whereas while Ocaña was also very bull-headed and very stubborn, he had more tactical sense. The Spanish had a different kind of love for Fuente because he was a climber and he was Asturian, and that means a lot. Fuente was from Asturias, his parents were miners, and he could have ended up as a miner, but he was a cyclist. He wasn't as poor as many people have made out, it was a family that could afford to help him buy a bike. He didn't come from a really poor family, just a working
4: family. <laughs>
3: The main stage of the 73 tour was the one that ended at Les or in the Alps. It was 237 kilometres, stage of 8 hours, and Fuente attacked and shattered the peloton at kilometre 90 on the Telegraph, with the Madeleine, Isoard, and the final climb still to come. He went away with Ocaña. Then they really got stuck into each other. It was kill or be killed. In the end, Ocaña won because Fuente punctured on the Isoard. Ocaña didn't wait for him and rode away. But with Fuente, there was this desire to put on a show, and more than that, it was the desire to crush the guy next to him. It was as though he was always riding with a clenched fist. His jirí against Merckx in 1972 and 74 were like this. In fact, Merckx always said that the rider who made him suffer the most was not Jimondi, who he could control more or less, but Fuente, because he was unpredictable. At any moment, Fuente could attack him and take a sledgehammer to any plan for a day or race and make Merckx suffer. This was what made him unusual. I believe that there's no other rider equal to Fuente, not even Pantani or anyone else. It was pure instinct with him. Fuente could have won that stage in 1973 but not the tour because Ocaña ended up winning by 15 minutes. Fuente ended up 17 minutes down in third. In his obsession with beating Ocaña, he also lost the mountains prize. His team had told him to go for the mountains jersey and he said no, I'm going to win the tour. In fact, I'm going to do more than win the Tour. I'm going to do it by crushing Ocaña. That's what mattered most to him.
4: Fuente had a similar outlook to Ocaña,
3: i.e. he thought everyone is a coward, everyone's content to follow wheels and sprint for second, whereas with me, it's all or nothing. That was him, all or nothing. One day he won a mountain stage by 5 minutes and the next day he lost 15 minutes on the flat because he didn't know how to position himself in the peloton. Or because he attacked on the first pass, then got dropped. It happened to him on the Catanzaro stage and it cost him the 1974 Giro. He lacked some of the basic instincts you need to be a cyclist. But hey, that's why it's beautiful, right? It's why everyone wanted to see Fuente because he didn't give a stuff. Fuente was more impulsive, more spectacular, whereas Ocaña always seemed more distant. Fuente won two Vuelters, or Cana only won one. That contributed to making Fuente more popular, I think, in the end. And in the statements, in his interviews with the press, he was much more aggressive. He said things that everyone wanted to hear. And then, of course, one of them died at age 49 and the other one at age 51. And, well, they were different deaths, but they were also both young. I believe they were both destined not to get far beyond 50, which is the age at which they say we start to decay. There was another duel, a rematch if you will, in the 1974 Vuelta. The decisive stages were in Asturias and the one that finished on the Alto de Naranjo just outside Oviedo. Fuente attacked, Ocaña couldn't follow and the fans insulted him for what he'd done to Fuente at the 1973 Tour. And also because in the 1973 World Championship in Montjuic, Ocaña had said that if Fuente was picked, Ocaña wouldn't ride for the national team. He betrayed Fuente and the fans didn't forget it. What he'd done was unforgivable especially in asturias remember how they also attacked alex zula because they considered that tony rominger was asturian having raced for an asturian team class up there it's a quasi football kind of support anyway fuente winning the 1974 Welter was seen as him having the last laugh
4: <laughs>
1: Now, the story for both Arcania and Fuente did not have a happy ending, unfortunately. When Arcania retired, he bought a vineyard. That ran into difficulties. Apparently when it was struggling, Eddie Merckx placed a huge order for some wine to kind of help him out. Um, Arcania also had a bad car crash. He had a blood transfusion that possibly caused some later um, health problems. And he was diagnosed with hepatitis as well. And he, well, as Francois said, he died by suicide at his home near Nogoro in 1994, aged just 48. Fuente himself died at the age of 50 uh, with kidney disease, so not a happy end to the story for either Ocania or Fuente, but the way they raced, and there is footage of of them racing on YouTube, which you may be able to find just really aggressive riders who, well, as Carlos Arribas said, Ocaña was the sort of rider who, when everyone else was not attacking, he would just, you know, throw down the gauntlet and then, you know, chide them for being, you know, soft, mm. non-attacking, non-aggressive riders. And, well, we like to see that, don't we? There's a little bit of that kind of panache in both Pogacar and Wingergaard. They are pure racers, aren't they? But anyway, um the hometown, so to speak, of Luis Ocaña.
0: Étape de demain, le dîner d'hier. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's dinner.
1: Well, last night was quite a special evening, wasn't it, Mitch? We were at Le Viscos, one of Francois' happy places, and lots of people turned up to say... Uh, chapeau and adieu to Francois including some friends of the podcast who made the trip really great to see so many podcast listeners come along great to say hello to you all and I hope you enjoy the rest of the tour and I hope you enjoyed the food that was laid mm. on by uh, the, the master chef Alexi at Le Viscos 15 courses, I think there were. I won't run through them all, but my podium was the big shrimp wrapped in the the local ham. That was delicious. Uh, There was a a mini sort of mini beef burger, really, in in a brioche bun. That was very nice as well. There was some of the Local bigore pork, which was cooked very rare indeed, but perfectly oh, safe to do so. that was beautiful, that one, actually. That was, that was my favourite, yeah. And then, in honour of Francois, there were a couple of things. There was a, a big pâté en croûte, which had Francois Tomazot's name on the mm. top in pastry. I and ate way too much of that. Francois loves a flan, doesn't he? Gets a flan at every service station. And there was a flan encased in delicious pastry. Some lovely wine, of course, and well, we had flan for lunch in honour of Francois, didn't we? But what a great evening it was, Mitch.
2: Probably a bit of a letdown having that flan after the flan we had last night. We got a <laughs> petrol station flan.
1: <laughs> it wasn't quite the same, was it? No, it wasn't. No, no. But, it, but was never like mind. A, it
2: was like a standing de- degustation because all the stuff came, you know, as an entree as we were standing around as canapes. But it was, it was really like a, a five-star Michelin, two-star Michelin dinner. That we should have probably been sitting down at a white tablecloth for dinner for
1: it was it, it was, was that quality wasn't it? it was unbelievable yeah, yeah. quality canapes are often small and delicate and mm. just to kind of wet the appetite but these were proper little mini courses weren't they it was mm. like almost yeah like you say a 15 course tasting menu uh which showed off the best of the region and well francois said a few words to the assembled Um, He did it in both languages, too. Of course he did. Of course he did. And people laughed in both languages as well, which was nice. And, yeah, there we are. Francois uh, is now, I imagine, he's probably getting dressed for dinner. A second consecutive dinner at Le Viscos for him this evening. Um, Well, Seb Piquet wanted to pay his own tribute to Francois.
0: Piquet,
5: the voice of Radio Tour, sitting at the back of the back. Oh François, mon cher François, au moment où je te parle, at this moment when I'm speaking from the finish in Bordeaux, you are probably struggling with a legendary hangover, the hangover of a career. You are certainly not regretting the three Maghreb de Canard two confits de canard added to the foie gras, the dozen cuisses de grenouille, and the 50 or so escargot, not to mention the liters of red wine after a few pastis peu cher. That you will not regret, despite that horrific headache. You might, however, regret leaving the tour so soon, not just because it promises to be a fabulous battle between two rockets, but also because you'll miss the mustache of Mitch Docker, the perfectly aerodynamic head of Lionel Burney, the sarcasm of Daniel Freeb and your mates. Because on the tour, you only have mates. I absolutely don't remember the first time we met, and you probably don't either. I just know and feel we were instantly mates. It's that sense of humour, you see, so British for a man from Marseille. It's that sarcasm, that way of saying the most politically incorrect things with a smile on your face and that coolness, that way of walking like nothing matters. And being around you, well, it does feel like nothing really matters. If you were a rider, you'd be a mix between Bradley Wiggins and Hugo Koblet, le pédaleur de charme, bien sûr. Now I know, but I already knew why Richard Moore liked you so much. À bientôt, mon ami, et merci pour ces moments. See you soon. Pour le tour des restaurants.
1: Mitch, almost time to go. We're going to miss Francois, of course, not just for his uh, company, the way he kind of takes the sting out of stressful situations, just with a. A gallic shrug. He said to me last night, the key to life is taking things 60% seriously 40% of the time. <laughs> or something like that. I may well be misquoting. I might have got the percentages wrong, but the, the, the ethos is there. Yeah. Uh, not, not taking things too seriously, just seriously enough. And I think he embodied that. We're going to miss his influence because we currently don't have a restaurant booked probably won't be a problem in a city the size of Bordeaux, but something we need to keep an eye on.
2: Oh, I can maybe take that roll over. Oh, That's not, not a bad role. I would like to take over that.
1: Excellent. Looking forward to that. But tomorrow's stage, what's on the menu? Well, the boys have got a big one tomorrow. We're heading
2: out of Liborne down to Limoges. I think you know, Francois will probably be killing me for that pronunciation. But we've got a 200-kilometre stage on board, and it is a flatter stage, but it's quite lumpy. Um, the last 70 kilometres, they're heading into the National Park of Le Monge, and it's very small little up-and-down roads. Um, it looks very hard, the last 70km. there is a sprint after 79 kilometres in the stage, but from 130 kilometres on, they've got a Category 3 climb, two Category 4 climbs towards the end, but it is just up and down the whole day, or up and down the last 70 kilometres anyway. At nine kilometers to go, they've got the category four climb, which I think is going to really change the the stage. It could be a breakaway day tomorrow, but given that Van Aert swung off the peloton today, at seven k to go and rolled in, I think it's alluding to that he is going to have a go tomorrow. And this finish looks like it's very set up for him. You know, the, the category four climb, it's 1.2 k at 5.4 percent. So they're going to absolutely fly over that. It's like a launch pad for Van Aert.
1: Yeah, I mean, we were saying it's a Michael Matthews-style stage as well if he were here, uh, but Van Aert. Brian Cockard, potentially. Mm, Maybe, maybe. I think the most interesting thing is whether uh, that distance before the first sprint, we know that Philipson has also got his eyes on the green jersey. He's got a, a good advantage in that, but he'll want to make sure that he's ticking the points over when he can. It will be really interesting to see whether they let a break go, what size of break it is, whether they leave a few points on the line at that intermediate sprint, because I think that's too far into the stage to keep everything under wraps. Mm, Um, I think a
2: breakaway will be gone by then, that's for
1: sure. Yeah, well, we shall see tomorrow, and we shall recap Stage 8 tomorrow, and hopefully in tomorrow's, yesterday's dinner, tomorrow's stage, we will actually have have had a dinner to talk about, Mitch
2: hopefully a very interesting you know I'm going to get onto it now quick I've got one last chance to save the day
1: thanks a lot Mitch
5: thanks Lionel the cycling podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney